All right, all right, fantastic. So, um, kids, you guys are dismissed. Elementary kids, you can run out the door. And um, uh, youth group, so junior and senior high, you guys are dismissed as well. And today is not a day that you want to miss because I think you guys are going out to lunch. I think Don Jay is going to share with you briefly, and then you're headed out to lunch. That's like a cruel joke. <laughs> Don Jay is going to share briefly before lunch. So anyway, you guys will get to lunch eventually. Just hang in there. So anyway, good to see you guys. Um, I can't figure you guys out because last week or two weeks ago, so many people sat on this side of the church that I thought the thing was going to go under that way. Now today we're, we're, we need to you freak me all out when you sit in different places. I'm easily freaked out, but hey, I'm not going to give the whole spiel on Israel, but here's what I will say about Israel, is that the response has been um, so super encouraging and almost overwhelming to the point where we have so many people that are interested. Um, if you're interested, please don't wait too long, because I want everybody who wants to go to get to go. So if you need help and how to, to do your registration online, um, grab me after church and we can help you do that. Um, but don't wait around because I, I do think that this, this trip is going to fill up. So uh, we would love to have you come along. If you don't have a brochure and you need one, uh, grab me afterward and I'll, I'll give one to you. All the information also is right on the church website on a special like Israel page that, that you'll see when you uh, get on there. So we'd love to have you come along, but don't wait uh, too long to do that. So uh, we have a great text this morning to, uh, to look at together. We're going to continue on in Mark chapter 6, um, but before we do that, let's pray and just ask the Lord uh, to just continue to bless uh, our time together uh, today. So Father, we thank you so much. Uh, Lord, as we do each and every week, we thank you for the things that you're doing here in our fellowship, Lord. We thank you for the things that you're doing in each one of our lives and hearts individually, Father. We thank you for the wonderful time of worship, Lord. We thank you for all of the opportunities that we have outside of Sunday mornings to, uh, to study your word and to encourage one another, uh, Lord. And we thank you, um, Lord, just for the privilege of being able to gather together here and to open your word freely, Lord. And we thank you for that ministry of your Holy Spirit as he uh, just enlightens your word to us and gives us understanding, Lord. And so that's what we pray for today. We pray that he would be our teacher. Lord, we ask your blessing on this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, we have some uh, that we would love to give you. You can certainly use the Bible on your phone. I'm going to be teaching out of the New King James Version if you want to follow along in that translation. But any translation you're comfortable with um, would be great. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 today, kind of right in the middle of the chapter. We're going to look at verses 14 through 29. And we've been looking as we've been working kind of our way through chapter 6, we've been looking at what we've called kind of the unfolding of unbelief, which we're starting to see now at this point in Jesus' ministry. We're heading kind of into that final year of his ministry, and things are heating up, of course, as he prepares to go to the cross. And we saw that unbelief unfolding first amongst his neighbors, remember, back at Nazareth. Remember, Jesus visited them once again in his grace to give them yet another opportunity to receive him. And we saw that they instead rejected him for what was that second time. And then last time we saw, again, kind of the promise of unbelief begin to unfold as Jesus warned the disciples, even as he was preparing them, remember, sending laborers out into the harvest. He was sending them out two by two to minister in his name and to do miracles in his name and to bring healings in his name. But he warned them that rejection would come because of his name and that they needed to be prepared for that to happen so that when it did happen, they wouldn't be discouraged and just be able to simply press on in their witness and their ministry. We talked about here are these ordinary men whom Jesus was empowering to do these extraordinary things. And just as it works in our lives, as they were simply faithful to do their part, they could sit back then and watch Jesus 
as he was faithful to do his part. And we left off with such an encouraging verse last week in verse 12 and 13 of Mark chapter 6. It says, they went out and preached that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And this is a significant verse. Understand, up until this point, We've had one person, Jesus, right, doing all of these wonderful things. And his fame had spread throughout the land and even beyond the land because of it. Now we have 13 people who are doing these very same things. And you can bet that the news of what was happening there in the Galilee was spreading like wildfire. Right? News of Jesus, news of his disciples, news of all of these supernatural, miraculous works. And so it's against this backdrop of all of that that's going on that Mark now kind of includes this interesting and yet very instructive kind of a narrative. And we're going to see he kind of sandwiches it in at this point. He kind of breaks in to his usual chronology of his account, and he gives us this very detailed description of all of the events surrounding the death of John the Baptist. Now, this is something that had actually occurred almost three years before this point, but Mark sort of uncharacteristically is going to devote more space to this story. He's going to provide us with more details about this story than any of the other gospel authors. And I think we're going to see at the end that there's a very good reason for that. But we're also going to see that as Mark describes John's death, that I think he also paints for us just a wonderful picture of John's life and of his witness, and really just of that powerful testimony of a life lived well. So as we continue on in chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 14. Remember, the disciples are right now, they're out there. They're on this preaching, healing tour throughout the Galilee, sent out as these laborers on behalf of Jesus into the harvest. And it says in verse 14 that now King Herod heard of him, Jesus, for his name had become well known. So again, there's this stir throughout the Galilee as this news, the first thing we have, right, the news of Jesus' mighty works is getting out. So much so that it caught the attention of Herod, who was the ruler over that region of the Roman Empire. He ruled over the territory of the Galilee from a palace he had built in a city he had built called Tiberias, and it was right there situated on the, uh, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and we will go there and we'll stay there when we visit. Now, we're not going to stay in the palace, but we will stay in Tiberias, right? It's just a few miles from Capernaum, which we've been talking about, which was a little further to the north, and that was the city that had kind of become Jesus' hometown, kind of his headquarters, if you will, for his ministry. Now, there are a lot of Herods both in history and in the Bible. And it's very easy to get them confused. We could actually do a whole morning looking at the sordid history of this sick family. And it would be super intriguing, kind of in one of those like reality TV, I just can't stop watching kind of a you know, train wreck ways, but we don't have that kind of time. So suffice to say about the Herods that they were a horrible family. Right? And this Herod in our text, who's usually called King Herod, which is ironic because he wasn't really a king, but he was just a ruler over this region who had been put in place by Rome. This Herod is Herod Antipas I. And he was one of the sons of the Herod you've probably heard of, who is Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great, understand, gave himself that name. Herod the Great was actually about four foot ten inches tall, so he probably should have called himself Herod the Short, but he didn't, right? Herod the Great. Now, this guy, Herod the Great, this guy was as mean as a junkyard dog, right? He had multiple wives, eight to ten of them, murdering most of them, right? He had numerous sons, and he also murdered a bunch of them. 
because Herod the Great was constantly afraid that there was this constant intrigue all around him and that people were always out to get him. Herod the Great was the one at the beginning of the Gospels, so about 32 years before this point. He was the one who had all of the baby boys killed back in Bethlehem in an attempt to exterminate, if you will, the Messiah. So now it's his son, right, one of the few that survived. It's one of his sons, Herod Antipas I, who inherited just this portion of Herod the Great's great kingdom. And he was allowed by Rome just to continue to kind of oversee it uh, 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 as a part of their empire. And we're going to see that Herod Antipas has his own sordid story, which we'll see as our text unfolds. So here's Antipas here sitting there in his palace there in Tiberias on the shores of the Galilee. Again, verse 14, King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. So, as news of the works of Jesus reach the palace and kind of permeate throughout the people, it leaves everyone kind of wondering who this Jesus really is. And it's interesting to me that the answers then were about as varied as they are even today. When you look at their assessment of Jesus and who he was and what he was and what was the origin of his life and his ministry and his popularity and his power. We see here some speculated that he was Elijah. Remember, Elijah was that miracle-working prophet who never actually did die in the Old Testament. Remember in 2 Kings chapter 2, he was just taken up to heaven in that chariot of fire. And so they assumed that this is Elijah, right? And he's simply come back and continuing his ministry. Others we see, they say there that it's the prophet, right? That he is the prophesied Messiah who was promised way back even by Moses in the Old Testament when Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, and him you shall hear. So for those of you who are keeping score, this is the group that actually got the answer correct, right? But here we have yet another group who thought, well, no, we don't think he's quite what we pictured that Messiah should be. He's not the prophet, but he is a great prophet. Probably just another prophet, the next prophet in the line of all of the Old Testament prophets. Remember, they hadn't heard from an Old Testament prophet in how many years? 400 years. So this group at least was on the right track. Right, but these were some of the conclusions that people were coming to. And again, we have to say that at least most of them are plausible. And yet Herod, we see that he somehow believes that this is none other than John the Baptist, who is somehow risen from the dead and is suddenly performing all of these miraculous works. Now, this is especially ironic. Okay, what's especially ironic about Herod's assumption here is that we are told specifically in the Gospel of John, that John the Baptist never performed a single miracle during his entire ministry, right? In John 10, 41, it says that John performed no sign. And yet here, for some strange reason, here's Herod Antipas, who suddenly assumes that he's back from the dead and now suddenly working all of these miracles. So just reading this, we have to assume there's something going on here that would make him come to this kind of a very illogical conclusion. And indeed, Mark tells us that there is, right? He tells us here in verse 16, so we've got all of these others who at least got close to who this actually was, who Jesus was. Verse 16, it says, but when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has risen from the dead. So there was a perfectly logical reason why Herod came to this perfectly illogical conclusion. And that was simply that he was suffering under the weight of a very guilty conscience. 
So this is just simply the power of Herod's guilty conscience. He knew that he was solely responsible for John's murderous death. Notice he says, this is John whom I beheaded. And it's interesting there because both here in verse 16, as well as back up in verse 14, when it says there that he said this, again, this is in that imperfect tense. Remember the imperfect tense in the Greek is that one that indicates like a continual action. So what it's saying is that Herod kept on saying this. But what's equally interesting is that the word heard is in a different tense, which means that he heard it one time. So again, put the picture together and you have, he heard one time this report of these miracles, and yet he kept saying over and over to himself, this is John the Baptist, this is John the Baptist. In spite of all the other explanations that were given, he was completely unmoved by any other opinion, and instead he's just ruminating over this, he's fixed upon this, like he simply couldn't shake this from his mind because he couldn't because he was haunted by his sin and the guilt that his conscience was producing. So what is a guilty conscience? Well, it's the guilt and it's that condemnation that we all experience when deep inside we just know that we've done something wrong. Right? The Bible's very clear. It teaches that every single one of us, even before we become a Christian, every single person is born into this world with a God-given conscience or a God-given sense, an intuitive sense of right and wrong. And then in addition to that intuitive sense of right and wrong, there's an intuitive knowledge or an understanding that I should always do right and that I should never do wrong. Now, Paul does a great job in Romans chapter 2. He kind of explains this and he talks about it in the, con in the context of Gentiles who he's talking about the fact that they're outside of the Mosaic law. And remember, the Mosaic law was provided so that very clearly we know from God's perspective what is right and what is wrong. But he says even beyond that, he says the Gentiles who do not have the law, he says they show the work of the law written in their hearts that their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts either accusing or excusing them, right? They don't even have the law, and yet they still have a sense of what's right and wrong. Now, many people see this as a function of the witness of the Holy Spirit, even to the unsaved. They see it as that first of those three different relationships the Holy Spirit can have with a person. Remember, we talked about first they are with them, sort of they're alongside of them, before they're born again, and it says the Holy Spirit comes to do what? To live in them, right? To regenerate them. So even prior to that, this is the Spirit already speaking, in a sense, to our hearts about what's right and wrong. So when we violate that conscience, we feel guilty. But when we obey our conscience, we experience what Paul calls a clear conscience, Right? We have that freedom, that wonderful freedom from guilt. So our conscience is a very, very valuable thing right? because it alerts us to, to what we're doing and whether it's right or wrong. And this passage and the example of Herod Antipas is placed here because it teaches us the power, really the incredible power of a guilty conscience and the great, great dangers in ignoring because as we said, Mark's about right here now in this verse to take a break from his narrative and he's gonna back up the truck a little bit for a history lesson. And what's really interesting about this is that there isn't anything else like this anywhere in Mark's gospel. You know, Mark's been moving fast, right? I haven't been moving fast, but Mark's been moving fast, right? And he's giving us kind of these, you know, like a Kodak moment after Kodak moment and maybe I'm dating myself because some of you are staring, like a picture after picture, right, of the life of Jesus, right? And here he's going to break from that, and now he's going to give us this kind of extended historical narrative. It, it, Luke gives it to us in three verses. Matthew gives it 
with less detail even than Mark gives it, which is different. So Mark must have a purpose in this. So he continues here. He just told us in verse 16 that when Herod heard it, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. And now Mark gives us the rest of the story, right? Speaking of dating myself, right? So this has all happened three years before. It says in verse 17, for Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So now we start to see this small sordid slice of the Herods generally and of Herod Antipas specifically right here on display. Because years before this, Herod Antipas was already ruling over this region of the Galilee, and he was married at that time to this Arabian princess. And yet, as the story goes, he wanted more recognition. He wanted more power from Rome. So he traveled to Rome, and while he was there, he stayed with his brother Philip. And while he was there, he proceeds to seduce Philip's wife, Herodias. And he enters into this adulterous affair and eventually a marriage. But it wasn't only adulterous, it was also incestuous because Herodias also just happened to be Antipas's half-niece, right? So he is her uncle, right? Because she was the daughter of one of, her, uh, one of his other half-brothers, right? Very complicated, super twisted, Right? And yet Herodias, she loved the idea that he was called a king. Because what did that mean? That meant she was about to be called a queen. Now this is where John the Baptist comes in. He says, I don't care what you call it. What I call it, this is just wrong. Right? This is wrong on multiple levels. Because based on the law of Moses, you are guilty of both adultery and of incest. Now we don't know the context in which this conversation took place, but the text to me seems to indicate that it was face-to-face, -face, some kind of a face-to-face -face kind of a conversation between John and Herod. It says right there that John had said to Herod. So there was some kind of an exchange where John the Baptist let him know in no uncertain terms just the, the weight of the word of God and what it says about what you've done, that this is not lawful. This is a violation of God's law and of his standard. Therefore, it says in verse 19, that Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. What's the famous line from that, that old play? Hell hath no fury, right, like a woman scorned. And so immediately here, John is a marked man. And we saw above that because of this fury of Herodias, right, it caused Herod to put John away in prison, right? Probably trying to appease her on some kind of a level. So he locks John up simply because John spoke the truth. And, and I think here we just need to pause and just think through this for just a minute. Because again, this speaks volumes to us just about the character of John and the, the faithful witness of John and really the power of that faithful witness. And of course, it speaks to us about our own character and our own witness, right? That John would stand up to Herod and Herodias, right? To the rulers of this entire part of the world at that time. These are very, very powerful people. There were no more powerful people geographically in that area. And of course, this says so much about John, right? He has already made quite a name for himself standing out before these massive crowds of people, right? Down there by the Jordan. And he's denounced sin and he's denounced just how far and how low the people of God had sunk in their love for sin and their pursuing after sin, right? He's called the whole nation to repent of their sin. And it absolutely takes a certain something for a man or a woman to be able to stand up in that kind of a public environment and call these huge crowds to repentance. But I would suggest to you this morning that that is actually the easier thing to do. Right? I would suggest that the harder thing to do 
is just to hold on to and to be consistent with your message and to be just as bold in your private conversations. Right, to be just as bold one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two or one-on-three, that is actually the much more difficult thing. To be able to just deliver the truth of God's word kind of into the intimacy of that kind of an environment. And John the Baptist, to his credit, he was so faithful to do both of those things. It's in Matthew 11 where Jesus says of John, he says, assuredly I say to you, that among those born of women, so that includes what? Everybody. Among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. That is a pretty strong testimony about John coming from God himself. Right? It didn't matter to John whether it was a crowd. It didn't matter whether it was one person. It didn't matter if it was a powerful person. It didn't matter if the people were powerless. The word of God was the word of God, and he delivered the word of God, and he did it faithfully. And, and I think that as Christians, I think that we do really need to seek our hearts. We need to seek the Lord Right In this hour in human history, in this nation that God has placed each one of us here in the United States, just to really simply seek the Lord about whether maybe we've grown too silent in the face of wickedness. Maybe we've grown too accustomed to the wickedness and to the sin that we just see occurring even in this great nation all around us, right? We see the moving of wickedness. We see the hiding of wickedness. We're starting to see the legitimizing of wickedness through the sin of the culture and then even through the legal system, right? With all of this ungodly legislation that's being enacted that's just reshaping who we are fundamentally as a society. And as Christians, it's so easy. We can look and surely we say, wow, this is a terrible thing that's happening. And yet I think that it can be so overwhelming that our reaction becomes that all we can do is kind of shrug our shoulders because we think, you know, what can I possibly do, right? I'm just one person, you know, this is an avalanche that's happening right before my eyes. And this is just sort of the way things are and it's really not any of my business. But I think as we look at John's life, we have to wonder, what if each one of us, as individual Christians, just stood up to the culture and individually, right, not waiting for some giant thing to happen, but just individually we stood up with grace, right, seasoned with salt, but we just simply started to call these sins exactly what they are when we encounter them. Whether we encounter them publicly or whether we just encounter them privately in our conversations. To be able to just stand up and say, actually, you know what? No, that's not right. That's actually lying, right? That person's not being truthful or what you said there wasn't actually truthful. Or to say, you know what? No, that's fornication, that's sexual relations outside of marriage because that part of the human relationship is supposed to be reserved for that person that you're making a lifelong commitment and a covenant to before the Lord. Or to say, you know what, no, that's gossip. And you shouldn't be telling me the things that you're telling me right now. Or to say, you know what, no, I disagree. That particular lifestyle that you say you're choosing, that lifestyle is a sin. It's not at all what God had intended you know, or to say, no, actually abortion is not anyone's right. Because it isn't right for anyone to take an innocent human life. And of course, we can apply this. We can talk about drug abuse. We can talk about alcohol abuse. We can talk about any other kind of thing that is wrong. But the point is that what if the world heard the same thing from every single Christian that they ran into instead of just hearing silence? but where somebody would just stand up and say, you know what, no, actually I beg to differ with you on that because there's another way to look at this issue. You know, here's what the Bible has to say about that subject. And of course we know first and foremost this has to start 
in our relationships with one another, right, in the body of Christ. Peter says that the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, right? So even in our relationships with other Christians, to be able to just stop and actually say, you know what, no, I disagree with the way you're looking at that. Remember, the Bible says this, and then to have a conversation about that. In the church, outside the church, just simply to start to stand up for the word of God because it is the word of God, and just to understand the importance of it. John did it, and it's about to cost him his life to do it. And it's a responsibility that we have to be salt and light in our culture on these things. But there needs to be a willingness for us to do it. And not only do we need to be willing, but we need to do it not just with a sense of clarity, but we need to do it with a gentleness and with a humility. Right? There's a beautiful proverb, I think, Proverbs 25, 15, it says this. It says, by long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. And the, the picture of this part of the proverb is of a servant standing in front of a king. Right, a servant standing in front of a sovereign ruler. And as this servant, of course, he has no power to change the king's mind. He can't change the king's heart. He has no authority in the decision-making of, of that powerful king. But what that servant does have is a place of influence in the life of that king. And so as that servant says, you know, what can I do to a king? What can I do to, to change this king? And Solomon tells us, the two things that will actually work, and I'm here to tell you they won't just work with the king, they work with everyone, and that's first of all, that by long perseverance, right, or with great patience, we just keep telling them the truth. Keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, but we have to do it, number two, what? Always in gentleness. Because the truth when it is spoken in gentleness, the proverb tells us it has the power even to break, you know, the bone of resistance, if you will. Think about it. If you come at me and you get out up in my face, right, and you start shouting at me and waving your finger at me right between, you know, I can dismiss you so very quickly, right? You do that to the wrong person, you're going to find yourself down on the ground, right? But if you come and you stand in front of me and you very gently say, you know, Bill, you know, such and such and such, and if you do it with a gentleness and a humility, and then you walk away and you leave me, well, what you just did is you just left me alone with my bad, ugly self. And now I have to deal with my bad, ugly self in light of what you have just said. And you've just penetrated that place that all the anger and all the wrath that they can never reach, right? You can reach much more deeply through gentleness with truth than any other possible way. Because again, when you walk away, you're not actually leaving it alone. What are you doing? You're leaving it now with the person of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is working on that person's conscience. And so great, great importance here. Again, just this power of a faithful witness like John. Now, of course, it's going to make people uncomfortable, isn't it? But this is what makes us salt and light in the culture where we are. And this is the way that God is able to keep his voice through our lives into the culture. And it works. And we see here it even worked with a man like Herod Antipas. Right, because watch what happens. John was faithful to, to deliver the word. And though Herodias wanted John to be killed immediately, Herod himself even knew that it wasn't right. Because Herod himself knew that John was probably right. And so what does he do? He spares his life the only way that this weak man could. He puts him into prison, right, sort of to protect him, if you will. And look what it says in verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So John's testimony and his character, it had touched Herod and had stirred up that conscience. Herod could see two things in John. What were they? Well, first, that John was a just man. 
right? Means that his relationship with other human beings was without question, right? There were no flaws. He was a man of integrity. He wasn't phony. He was consistent. He was authentic, right? He told the truth. He treated other human beings the right way. So he was just, but also with that, secondly, he was holy, which means that his relationship with God was the way that it should be. So John was a man who was in right relationship both with God and with his fellow man. He not only spoke the truth, he not only delivered the word of God faithfully, but he had that godly character to back it up. And even a man like Herod could see it and it touched him. And notice it also intrigued him, right? It made him want to know more about John. Now, the, the better sense of the end of verse 20 is that when he heard him, he was very perplexed, and yet he used to enjoy listening to him. Right? So there was something stirring there in this hardening heart of Herod Antipas, so much so that he used to go visit John in the prison because he wanted to hear more of what he had to say. Right? At this point, Herod was, I think, more of a weak man necessarily than a cruel man. So here he listened to John with this kind of a, like a strange fascination, right? The things that, that John said left Herod perplexed and probably in anguish, and yet he still wanted to hear more. I love the way that one author put it. He said that he found a strange pleasure in the authoritative preaching of this holy man whose stringent life gave added power to his probing word. Too weak to follow John's counsel, he nevertheless had to listen. So here, I think Herod is a man who was trapped between this respect and this admiration he had for John and his fear, right, and his passion that he had for his wife Herodias. And I think we all know a guy like Herod, right, because there, there are Herods all around us. You know, this is a guy who, you know, likes a good religious conversation once in a while. You know, they kind of like the intellectual stimulation of kind of batting these kinds of things around with us. Maybe they even like to go to church, right? They don't have a problem with that kind of thing. Maybe they even throw a few bucks in the offering, right? All of these things, right? They like to hear the word of God. They like even to hear what the people of God have to say. They just don't want to obey it as it impacts and affects their own life. And little did Herod know, he was just being set up for the kill. The way that the devil sets anybody up who's willing to be set up the way that Herod is letting himself be here. And finally that day comes, look what it says in verse 21. It says, then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles and the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. So here it is, it's his birthday and he throws himself a party. Right? And all of the who's who of the Galilee were in attendance. We've probably got Roman military officials. We've got all the government officials. We've got all of the people of the, the Galilean people of influence. And Mark tells us that this was a very opportune day for who? For Herodias. Because this was her opportunity to get just what she has wanted all along. And that is John the Baptist, not just in prison, but dead. So this was an opportune day for the execution of Herodias's evil plan. You guys see what I did there with execution and the plan and because John's about to be executed. You guys with me? Okay, I'll be here all week, so. I mean, she disliked this guy so much. Again, it had become an obsession with her. And now she sees this day, this is the perfect chance to make this happen because she knew how these things went, right? Because with a feast came not only food, but what? Wine, lots of wine. And then there was the drunkenness that always followed the, the wine. And then there was something else that always followed both the food and the wine and the drunkenness, and that was the dancing. Look what it says in verse 22. It says that when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him. 
So understand, after the meal would always come kind of the exotic entertainment, right? But the usual entertainment would have been a troupe of these professional women, right? These professional dancers, right? Exotic dancers, really erotic dancers who would come in and do this very, no, there's no pictures of it this morning, right? But they would do this very sensual dancing, right? That would just arouse all of the men there. And all of that probably did happen, but then came the absolute finale, right? This is the pinnacle of Herodias's evil plan because once all the professional dancers had come through and done their thing, suddenly something that is absolutely unheard of, now all of a sudden a princess here in the kingdom Right, Herodias' daughter herself, it says, she comes up and now also starts to dance just as lewdly and just as suggestively in this very public setting as Herodias, no doubt, has sent her daughter, right, Herod's stepdaughter, who also just happened to be his niece, right, we know her name was Salome, Right? At this point, she is probably just in her mid-teens, if that. So she comes in and she begins to dance this very lewd, sensual dance until she has all of the men in the room very, very excited, lusting after her. Yeah, this is so wrong on so many different levels. And yet Herodias knows her husband well. And she knows how weak he is. And she is willing to exploit all of those weaknesses just to get exactly what she wants, which is the strategy, of course, that the devil uses on us all the time. She knows very well that under the influence of wine, under the influence of this sexual lust, this unprecedented sensual sexual display by his princess niece stepdaughter, Right, that, that Herod Antipas here is very likely to do something to put himself in a compromised position. And lo and behold, it's exactly what he does. Look again, verse 22, when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, so this is an oath, right? Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now certainly, there is a whole other sermon in here about how to do stupid things under the influence of alcohol and lust. Okay, now, it's a good thing we're gonna save that for a different day. Right? Maybe we'll save that for the men's getaway. No guys, I promise we won't, or, or none of you would show up. Right? We won't talk about that. But Herod falls, right? Actually, I would say Herod leaps right into the trap. And of course, the irony is Herod didn't actually even have a kingdom to give away since he ruled over something that belonged to Rome, right? But the idea behind the expression is, look, that was so good, you name it, you got it. Verse 24 says, so she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, right, the puppet master, the head of John the Baptist. So, you know, Salome hadn't been fully read into the plan from the beginning, so now she needs to run back to mom, and notice how Herodias has this thing chambered right up, right? She already has the answer ready to go. This lovely woman, she didn't simply want to hear that John was dead, she needed to see with her own eyes the ultimate evidence of his death, which was his head severed from his body and brought into this party on a platter. Again, these are just awful, awful human beings. And notice the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Salome is very quick to obey. It says in verse 25, Mark's favorite word, immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26 says, And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet... So there's the hinge word, right? That one word, yet. And that's the word that is about to change the entire course of Herod's future on earth and likely his destiny eternally. 
Because it says the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison. So here's weak Herod Antipas, right? Too afraid to cross his wife, equally afraid Right, of being embarrassed in front of his guests, and he did something he absolutely knew was absolutely wrong. And it is something I believe that everyone else there, right, all of his guests who were there, they also knew that this was wrong. Right? And you can hear the anguish of Herod just in the language that Mark uses. The, the sense of the text there where it says that Herod was exceedingly sorry is that he was deeply distressed even to the point of being in agony. And it's the same word, the very same word, it, it, it's a word, um, paralopos, which means greatly distressed, and it's the same word that Mark will later use in chapter 14 as the Spirit inspires him to describe the absolute agony that Jesus endured in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the kind of distress and agony that Herod was under here. And yet, he violated his pained conscience, right? Here his conscience is shouting at him, and he violates it simply for the sake of his pride and out of fear. And so with the acts of the executioner, right, he sends John the Baptist directly to heaven, and he condemns himself very likely to hell both hell eternally, but also certainly hell on earth until that time because every day from that day, he would now live under this crushing weight of this decision that he just made because that's the thing about a guilty conscience. It can never, ever truly be quieted because our guilty conscience is always there just beneath the surface, and it's tormenting us. And many of us have experienced this, right? You don't need to put a John the Baptist to death to be tormented by your own guilty conscience because it just sort of lingers there. And whatever your sin happens to be, it just lingers there just out of sight. And the thing is that you're never sure what's going to trigger it to come back up to the surface. And so what happens is that you start to live each and every day of your life in this place of fear. Fear that today might be the day. You know, is something going to get said? Is something going to be seen? Is something going to be done? And suddenly you're going to be transported right back there in that moment, reliving every moment of that tragic decision, right? Where you're reliving your own yet. Right? That's how close to the surface that guilty conscience can be in our life. And it simply won't allow a person to rest. Right? No matter how much power or money or, or no matter how much time goes by between the event and that time when your conscience is suddenly pricked again, you just simply cannot get free of your past. And you just live in this sort of haunted tormented place and what it does is it makes the whole world into our enemy because that fear and that guilt that something is going to trigger us to the surface again just like it did here for Herod right back at the beginning of the text right he first hears about the works of Jesus and immediately what happened he's transported back right here to this moment when he sinned so terribly against John and against God. And remember, he had silenced that for over three years. And here's the real danger of ignoring a guilty conscience the way that Herod did, right? He ignored it and he ignored it and he hardened his heart against it, right? Against that guilt that his conscience was speaking to him and he kept pushing it down, and he kept pushing it down. And yet the danger of hardening my heart every time I'm reminded of my guilt, and I keep hardening it, and I keep hardening it, is that one day I can harden it to the point where it doesn't feel anything anymore at all. And at that point, what I have is a seared conscience. 
a conscience that is so seared over and so hardened that it simply doesn't feel anything anymore. And that's a much more dangerous kind of a condition than a guilty conscience. Right, so Herod allowed his heart to harden on this day and then harder and harder every day. And no doubt on this day again that he hears about it, about what's going on with Jesus and continued to harden it right up to the point until within just another year from now, where we are in our story, now we're at the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus, you remember, is brought in before this very man before this very Herod. And by that point, his heart now is so very hard that he just looks at Jesus and he shamefully treats him and he mocks him. Right? It's in Luke 23, it says that Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So someone who refuses to listen to that conviction can drive themselves ultimately to a place where they end up even mocking Jesus and simply dismissing him. So of course the question for us is what does a person do with a guilty conscience, right? Is there any hope of ever being released from it? And of course, thankfully, the answer is yes. But you can't go back and fix it. No one gets to go back in time to fix our past sins. Our past is our past, and that's a reality. As much as we would love to change that moment in time or, or that series of bad decisions, we can't go back there and do that. But thankfully, God has provided a way to release us from the grip of that guilt and to move us forward. And that cure is the cross. Right, the cure for our guilty conscience is to believe in and trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, to receive him into our life as our Lord. It was Charles Spurgeon who once said that the only cure for a guilty conscience is the sight of Jesus suffering on the cross. The only cure is for us to come to this place in life where I say, God, you know what? I believe you. I believe your assessment of me. I believe when your word says I'm a sinner and that I'm less than perfect. And I believe that my sin has separated me from this relationship that I'm supposed to have with you. And I am done with it. I'm done with my life. I'm done with my decisions. I'm done being the victim that I have made myself into. I'm done with all the other victims that I have left in the, the decisions I've made in my life. And I'm willing now to turn from all of that now to turn to the path that, that you want me on. That's called what? Repentance. And when a person will truly do that, that's that moment when a miracle will happen, right? As God's Holy Spirit comes down now into that person's life and they are instantly born again by the Spirit. And they begin that personal relationship with God. It's that eternal relationship that now goes on forever and ever from that point. And it's there to be received as a gift. And when we simply do that, the Bible says that God then cleanses us from that evil or that guilty conscience. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you know why it's only our faith in Christ that can cleanse us from a guilty conscience? Because it's God doing, right? When we give our lives to him, it's God doing the one thing that no one else can do. It's him giving us a fresh start. And the reason that he's the only one that can give us a fresh start is he's the one that paid the great Christ through the sacrifice of his son in order to do that. That's the provision of the cross to cleanse us from that guilty conscience. Right? As it says in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we all know it. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. That old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. God gives us this another wonderful chance to start 
over, right? To start a fresh life with a blank slate. And then he gives us the power of the Spirit living inside of us, which gives us the will to live a different kind of life, gives us the power to live that different kind of life, and now a life of obedience to the Word of God. But here's the question I think that we need to ask. You know, most of us in here are already believers, right? So we need to wonder as we sit here this morning, what do we do now as a Christian? Right? How do I address a guilty conscience as a Christian? Either that guilty conscience for those things that I did before I was finally born again, or for those sins that I still commit now that I am born again. What? A Christian sinning? Yeah, it actually it happens. Right? What did Don Jay say? Another week of sin. Right? I missed the mark again. So what do we do? I mean, here I am, I'm saved, I'm walking with the Lord, but what do I do when that great sense of guilt starts to well up inside of me, right? Well, we take it back to the cross and we lay it down there again at the cross, right? New sins, old sins, they all go at the foot of the cross because the very same cross that cleansed us is the cross that keeps us. When that happens to us and that guilt starts to well up and overwhelm us, we remember 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? That we are a new creation in Christ. We remember Romans 8.1, that there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? We remember Romans 5.8 that says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember that your past failure was not a surprise to God. Your present struggles are not a surprise to God either. He knew exactly what he was getting when he saved you. And guess what? He saved you anyway. I love to think about the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, where it says that God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and here's the part, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Understand what that verse is saying is that my forgiveness and your forgiveness, our forgiveness as Christians is so complete that God already sees us seated there in the heavens. Right? He already sees us beyond this life and he sees us into the life to come seated there in heaven with him. That's how sure our salvation is. And that's what the Bible says about my past. That's what the Bible says about my present. That's what it says about me. That's the truth about my life and my future. It's not what my feelings try to tell me. It's not what anybody else might think about me. It's not what the devil tries to come and accuse me of every day. Right? This is why Paul says to the Corinthians that we need to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Right, having brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Right? The next time you have one of those thoughts about your past failure or your present sin and it trips you up, you have a choice right at that moment. You're either going to allow that thing to take you out and beat you up and throw you down and leave you bloody on the side of the road, or you're just going to stop when that thing comes into your mind and you're going to say, Lord... Your word tells me that to think about this, right, to give this any place in my life, to give it any more of my thought life, I know it's dishonoring to you. I know it's dishonoring to the cross of your son. I know it's dishonoring to his precious blood. And I need you now to help me to take this thought that is so unworthy of you, This thought that's now even unworthy of me and I need to take it captive and I need you to help me throw it out. And to take this thought and to give it to you and to allow you to do with it whatever you see fit and to do that and then to simply go on about your business that day. That's how we need to handle that kind of guilt or that shame over our past 
that threatens our peace even once we've given our lives to the Lord. And Herod becomes this cautionary tale, right? He is a big, ugly billboard of the dangers of not doing that. Because here's what history tells us, is that it wasn't too long after his part in the death of Jesus in AD 33. You remember that Arabian princess we talked about who Herod was married to that he put away in order to take his sister-in-law as his wife? Well, that princess's father, right, King Aretas of the Nabataeans, he was understandably offended by all of this, and he comes against Herod by this huge combined army, right? It's the Petra Edessian army. That just sounds scary to me. But he comes against Herod and sorely defeats Herod in battle in AD 36. And then just after that, Herod's own brother, Herod Agrippa, accuses him of treason against Rome, and Herod Antipas is banished by Emperor Caligula into the distant Roman province of Gaul, where Herod and Herodias eventually committed suicide. No doubt haunted each and every day by their sins. We have no word that either one of them ever turned to Christ before that time. How much better would it have been for Herod to have just heeded his guilty conscience Right, his guilty but still active conscience and simply come to Jesus. How much better would it have been for him in this life to say nothing about the life to come? So let's finish up our last two verses quickly. Look at the end of verse 27. He gives the order during the party right, for the, the murder of John the Baptist. It says he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Right? Happy Mother's Day. What a charming family. Verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. There's a, a Scottish preacher whose name was uh, Graham Scrogie, and he ministered up until he died in about 1958. But he said something that I will always remember when it, uh, as related here to the death of John the Baptist. He commented that some heads speak more clearly from a platter than others do from the shoulder, right? And I think that the life of John the Baptist, right, this greatest man born among women, speaks so clearly, right, even from the platter. Again, the importance of faithfully ministering the word, the, the power of our own faithful testimony and of our godly character and that, you know, as it relates to other, we're just as it relates to other people and we're holy as it relates to the Lord because it's through this kind of a continued faithful witness, that's how we become a powerful testimony even to those outside of the faith. Because John's life speaks so loudly even now from the grave, and is used here in Mark's account by the Holy Spirit, I believe, in a very unique way. To speak very loudly, right? One of the, one of the clearest voices, the most convicting voices, I think, to speak to a special audience in a special way. Remember we wondered why Mark devoted more room to this historical narrative than any of the other gospel writers? Well, I believe it's because, remember, that Mark's readers primarily were who? They were the Romans. He was writing his gospel to people who were in a world that was steeped in and surrounded by this kind of behavior and this kind of debauchery, this kind of hypocrisy, and this kind of false authority. All of these things that so made up the Roman world, all of the sensuality and the sexuality and the food and the wine and the kings and the queens and the, the who's who of the day, all of these things that presented themselves as prosperity and as success. And his readers there in that Roman world, they would have every day been experiencing exactly this kind of thing. And so he writes and he focuses in and he highlights this incredible man, John the Baptist, 
right? Just this bright light, this unmistakably bright light in the midst of all of this darkness. Here's this one guy in this whole picture who tells the truth and who is just and who is holy and who is filled with the spirit of the living God and he is so unjustly treated by a man who's not half the man that he is. Right, this shell of a man, Herod Antipas, this unjust ruler who's calling the shots, who every person who would have read Mark's account, they would have known exactly the disgraceful and tragic end that Herod Antipas had. Right, even his readers right during the first century, every one of them would have known the desperate death and the tragic end of Herod Antipas. And so I think it would have been fresh in their minds. Right? And so in this account, all of this detail placed right here in the midst of this fast-moving account through Jesus, it's like we just stop and we shine the spotlight on this and it would have so powerfully highlighted for them that there is so much more than this world that you're a part of and that you don't need to end up like Herod. Right? No matter what it is you've done, no matter who it is that you've hurt. And then by the time they get to the end of reading Mark's account of the life of Jesus, they will understand fully that he died even for them. Just as he died even for us. So I believe that this story of John the Baptist Right, the way that he was so unjustly treated here by Herod. It shows us the power of a life well lived, but it also shows us the possibility that anyone could live that life as well, even a Roman, or even me, or even you. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word as we do each and every time we open it, Lord. We thank you for... Um, Lord, we always thank you for the encouragement, but we need also to thank you for the admonition, Lord, that sometimes your word brings. And Lord, we do pray that if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, and your spirit is stirring them in their own conscience, Lord, I pray that they would not harden their hearts, Lord, against that voice, but today would be the day that they would come to repentance, Lord, and that even now, as we begin to worship, Lord, that they would reach out to you, Lord, in the privacy of their own hearts. Lord, that they would come forward for prayer, Lord, if they need someone to pray with them, Lord, but that, uh, that today would be the day of salvation, Lord, for those who you are speaking to today. Lord, I pray for the rest of us, Lord, who already do know you, that if there's weight and there's burden that we are carrying around with us, Lord, I pray that this would be a time of renewal and of refreshing Lord, as we take that guilt and we take that shame and we take whatever it is and we lay it down once again, Lord, there at your cross. And we leave it with you. And we allow you to fill us afresh and to, and to move us on forward. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand up and let's uh, worship the Lord and then... Uh,